Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious... Sophie Lyons, nicknamed Queen of the Burglars, and one of the late 19th century's most prolific American thieves and con artists. She started getting the man alone in a hotel room and then stealing his clothes and either throwing them out the window or throwing them in a trunk and locking them in a trunk. And then forcing the man to write her a check or give her cash, usually it was a check, to get the clothing back so he could leave. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. I'm Eric Rivenis. As always, I am so glad you're here. Okay, well, on to the show. So great to have as my guest today, Shane Davidson. She has more than 30 years of experience as a genealogist, illustrator, and author. And the book she is here to chat about today is called Queen of the Burglars, The Scandalous Life of Sophie Lyons. Great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here, Eric. Thank you. Yes. So Sophie Lyons was a woman with an incredibly colorful life, but I don't recall coming across her name before picking up your book. How did you first discover her, and and how did your discovery turn into a book? Uh, Well, actually, I believe I first discovered her by looking at a book called Professional Criminals of America which was written, published in 1886 by a man named Thomas Burns, who was the chief of detectives of the New York City Police. And he was quite a well-known policeman of the 19th century, probably the best-known American policeman of that era. And he published this book in 1886 called Professional Criminals of America. And it's a very fascinating book. It contains 204 mugshots of the people that Mr. Burns thought were the most villainous and evil and serious criminals um, at that time. And he also included sort of short criminal biographies of these people. And so I was looking through, the, the book was actually republished in 1969. 
And I was looking, so I had that copy and I was looking through it. And he doesn't include very many women in the book, but he included 18 out of his 204. So I was looking through those women's uh, photos and I was really struck by the fact that there was only one woman who looked, she looked different than the other women. She looked relaxed, almost pleased that somebody was photographing her in a police context. She's kind of smiling. And, you know, most of the people in the book are kind of looking away or they're looking down or they're frowning or they're looking unhappy, as you would expect. Uh, but she didn't, she was looking different. And so I started, I read the little bio that he included about her and, you know, it talked about her history. And, and when I get interested in a, a person and, and I'm very interested in crime history, so we're primarily talking about crime here. Um, when I get interested in, in a person, I create a family tree for them. That's just something I do <laughs> to relax. I guess. <laughs> I just, it's a hobby. I enjoy doing it. So I started a family tree for her, uh, figuring and, and, you know, when you're trying to trace criminals, um, in the context of genealogy, it's quite difficult. Um, and I think that's one of the things I really like about it. It's a big challenge because for the most part, they didn't want to be found. Uh, and they would avoid, you know, census takers or whoever. And so I started a family tree for Sophie. And I just kind of worked on it occasionally, you know, here and there, whenever I had a little time. And uh, it was interesting to me. And I began looking for an original copy of this Burns book, this Professional Criminals of America, a, an 1886 copy, because I decided I wanted to own it. And in addition, another odd hobby that I have is that I collect uh, mugshots, early mugshots, uh, primarily 19th century mugshots, but I go into the 20th a little bit. Uh, but I, so I, I, you know, was interested in having an original copy of the book. And, and as you might expect, it's expensive. So um, there aren't very many of them. I'll bet. But uh, I noticed that a copy came up at a rare book shop in Detroit, which is near where I live. So I checked it out. I was looking at it online. And, um, you know, there were a number of uh, photos from the book were, were put online by the the bookseller. And I noticed that one on one page, it said the book, it had a name written in the book. The name was Florence L. Bauer. And I thought, hmm, I've just been making this family tree for Sophie Lyons. And I think Florence, this Florence L. Bauer was her daughter uh, because Florence, uh, her married name was Bauer. So I thought this could be, you know, Sophie Lyons' daughter's book, and it could even be Sophie's book. So I thought, I'm real interested. I'm going to have to go look at this book. So I did. I went there and looked at it and it looked totally like, you know, it was legitimately, you know, somebody had just written this name in there and it was probably the person who owned it. So I bought the book and, and that sort of got me started with thinking about Sophie and maybe doing more uh, about her life. And um, I was also, I had been looking for a biography of her. I assumed that there would be one, but there wasn't. And I was sort of frustrated by that. I really didn't intend to write a book, but I really wanted to read a book about her life. So 
ultimately, I decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to write the book since nobody else has written the book. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, that's how it started. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Sophie was a professional liar with dozens of aliases. Right. It must have been an incredible challenge mm -hmm. to research this book, not knowing what to believe. Right. And tracking a woman whose sole purpose in life was to cheat and to avoid detection. Yes. Yes. It was hard. And I think that it, uh, pre the digital era, it would have been pretty much impossible to do. I mean, I think it would have taken years and years and years. But now we have so many things available online, digitally, you know, records, genealogical records, Google Books, uh, photographs. Uh, there's just such rich source material. That made it quite a bit easier. And, um, you know, using my family tree as a sort of skeleton for the biography, I knew... Um, I had a sense of what was basically accurate and what wasn't based on, you know, having those records available to me. And then, you know, I did newspaper, a lot of newspaper research, and I pretty much just went with whatever was the thing, the, the newspaper article that came out closest to the time of the event or, what I, or, or a newspaper article that I could verify in other ways. Um, you know, some other way, like maybe I could, somebody was mentioned, and I could discover whether or not that person really existed, and whether the information about them matched what I was being told in the article. So that's, yeah, that's how it went. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I, I also strangely, well, a few other kind of strange things happened as I was starting with the idea of writing the book, which was one was I realized I came across a Google books um, discussion of uh, her, one of her pickpocketing events that, and it, and I found that it had happened only about four blocks from my house. So I was really shocked at that. <laughs> and um, I also discovered this uh, photograph online of one of her daughters I can't even remember. I, I discovered it on eBay and I bought it and I can't even remember anymore how, why I was looking. I guess I was searching for her children or something photos, which would have been a, you know, waste of time. But I did, amazingly, I did find this one uh, uh, beautiful photo of her daughter who was a, an opera singer. So um, those were just sort of strange coincidences that sort of kept me going. Right, yeah. So if you don't mind, let's start at the beginning. Sophie came to America as an immigrant, among millions of immigrants, right. the vast majority of whom became law-abiding, productive citizens. Yes, absolutely. But that wasn't the case for her, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> but, you know, to be fair, her parents were criminals, and they forced her into being a criminal. They taught her how to be a criminal when she was a child. So we can't really blame her for that. Um, that was, you know, that, that was the path that they wanted her to take. And according to her, and she wrote a memoir, by the way, um, in 1913. And according to her memoir, they forced her with physical violence to uh, carry out these, uh, these 
pickpocketing and shoplifting expeditions. Can you give us a timeline of her early life? This was the 1860s, right? Correct, yes. She was born December 24th, 1847 in Laub in Germany. And she came to America in 1855. Um, interestingly, her, her mom and dad and an infant daughter came the year before. So they went separately. Then she came with her, uh, a couple of siblings died in Germany, but she came with her two brothers and then two older cousins who apparently sort of shepherded the younger children, including Sophie, uh, to, um, to America. And they, you know, arrived in New York and that's where her father and mother had settled. So they, that's where, you know, the kids were headed to New York city. And of course they lived in the poor section on the Lower East Side. And, um, that's where the, the criminality, as far as I can tell, that's where it began. So it, and it, it escalated pretty rapidly to the point where she was, by the time she was 12, she was, um, incarcerated in the ha- in the house of refuge in uh, New York City which was the first juvenile detention facility in America so she pulled some kind of a burglary that got her sent there and i'm sure she'd been doing other things you know she claimed she'd been arrested many many times as a young child but um the first real definite arrest that can be verified is that she was at the house of, you know, her incarceration at the House of Refuge. You mentioned in your book that one of the only times she felt like a kid was when a police officer picked her up off the street and let her play with some toys and even took her home temporarily. Yes. Well, he he gave her candy. It's not clear that he took her home. He gave her candy and she was supposedly in the police station, you know, being held. And I mean, I... I don't know exactly what the story is in terms of the New York City police holding children in a police station. I find it hard to believe that anybody was ever held for very long, any child was held for very long. But she claimed they gave her candy and, you know, it was nice. She didn't have to deal with her parents who were always, you know, burning her with hot pokers and her her cousin who was kicking her around. So. It's a very sad early life. She met a guy by the name of John Larney pretty early on, right? Yes, John Larney. His uh, nickname was Molly Matches, and that's what he was more known by. You can find many pictures of him online. Uh, He was apparently uh, sort of a con child, (laughs) if that's such a thing, who was uh, passing himself off as a girl just a match girl in New York City and going around selling matches, but actually he was picking people's pockets while he was doing that. So somehow that nickname, Molly Matches, stuck. But he was a career criminal. He had a, a very, very long history of primarily just being a pickpocket. So yes, they apparently hung out together. And uh, she also hung out with Adam Worth who was the later known as the Napoleon of crime. He, uh, a book has been written about his exploits, which are quite interesting. So yeah, she, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of pickpockets and shoplifters and going around in New York city. And she knew a lot of them. And her first husband, 
she she married pretty young. Yes. And his name was Maury Harris. His name was Maury Harris, yes. Mm-hmm. And he appears to have been a career criminal also. But the marriage, I mean, she was quite young, possibly happened as early as 1863 when she was maybe only 15. And the marriage doesn't seem to have lasted very long uh, because she, uh, well, she had been in the House of Refuge. She came out and she seems to have uh, started to work with Marm Mandelbaum at that point, who was the most well-known fence in, in really in America at, uh, in the 19th century. And Marm had a lot of pickpockets who worked for her. And uh, Sophie was one. And I think that that's where Sophie met many of her colleagues in crime. Uh, I don't know if Maury was one of her pickpockets, but that's where she met her for her second husband, Ned Lyons. If there was ever an American version of Oliver Twist made, uh, Fagan would be Marm Mendelbaum, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. There's also been a book written about Marm Mendelbaum. So, you know, um, and she, there, are, there are no photos of her, unfortunately, but there are a couple drawings of her. So that it kind of gives you a sense of what, you know, what these people were about. She was apparently a, a rather um, a large woman who uh, never wore a corset, according to George Walling, <laughs> the chief of police at the time. Of course, he was interested in, you know, being nasty to her. So uh, he didn't like her. So, you know, you have to, you always have to figure out, listen to who the source is of this material. Right. So, yeah. But Marm was, was pretty much a mother figure to Sophie, uh, wouldn't you say? Well, I think so, because, you know, Sophie didn't like her mother. And uh, I mean, because her mother was forcing her to, to, you know, be a criminal. And uh, by the time she was with Marm, Marm was, you know, she was doing her criminality by choice, apparently, with Marm. And uh, Marm was, a lot of people called her mother, but Sophie definitely called her mother. And she was, uh, she took care of the people who worked for her. That was part of her success, I think, was that she cared about them. Would you describe for my listeners what Sophie looked like? Sure. Well, she was short. She had brown hair, uh, gray eyes. She doesn't really look like she was classically beautiful, but she was apparently very alluring. And um, she knew apparently how to use her her features and whatever uh, you know physical attributes she had. She knew how to use them to her advantage. So uh, a lot of men were interested in her, and um, she had some sort of sex appeal. Um, and there, you know, there are many photos of her available across a fairly long time period. So we get a pretty good sense of what she looked like. She was, you know, she had no problem looking you straight in the eye. And um, (laughs) she, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say. She, she, although she did also like to cover herself up a lot because uh, that was one of her techniques that she used to keep people from being able to identify her was to wear hats with heavy veils so I guess she d- would decide who would get to see her and who wouldn't. So. And you also write that she kept her hair cropped. 
really short. Well, she did later on. Yes, I would say that that was not at first. That was uh, probably not until the eighteen late 1870s and 1880s. And at that point, she's using a lot of disguises and she is wearing wigs frequently. So I think it just helped her when she's wearing these big veiled hats or she's wearing wigs to not have a lot of hair to deal with. And then later on, you know, when she became middle-aged, she grew her hair again because she wasn't needing those types of, of disguises. And we will return in just a moment. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back again. I mean, I think for me, the most interesting relationship that she had, and it would be for many years, was with a man named Ned Lyons. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us about him and, and them together? 
Uh, sure. Well, all, let me say all of her, she had four husbands and they were all thieves. So, um, n- you know, no honest men here. But yeah, Ned was a, a bank robber. He was quite well known as a bank robber uh, in New York City by the time they, the two of them got married. He was an immigrant from Ireland. He um, lived with his mother uh, for a while in Massachusetts, and he got married there, and he apparently dumped his first wife, moved to New York City, and got involved in you know the gangs that were doing bank robberies there. And this was where, at a time when bank robbery was, was big, and the bank robbers were at the top of the heap, and if they were successful. And, you know, most of the big banks were in New York City at this time. So, you know, that's what what the draw was. Uh, He was apparently a very, very willing to fight anybody (laughs) who who crossed him. Uh, But he was also apparently very uh, personable. So people liked him. So as long as they stayed on his good side, everything went well. You know, and he he was said to dress like a better what was it um, a better uh, ward boss. <laughs> so you know, he apparently was an, a snappy dresser, but not uh, you know maybe not real fashionable, but a little little tasteless, but uh, but snappy. Right, right. And uh, yeah, he he loved to do bank robberies, evidently, and he did quite a lot of them. And then in 1869, uh, he and Sophie were married at this point. He did this ocean bank robbery, which was a very big deal. It was the biggest bank robbery that had happened up to that point in New York City. There would be bigger ones that would come later, but that was a big one. And, uh, and it was done very cleverly. You know, they, they, these bank robberies took a lot of, of planning back then. It wasn't people going in with guns, you know, like, uh, like Dillinger, it was, uh, they were generally the successful ones that, that yielded large takes were required a lot of planning. So with the ocean city or the ocean bank, they rented the space below the bank. It was like a sort of a garden apartment type of space. If you're familiar with, you know, some of the buildings, the older buildings in New York city, um, and they rented this building, this, this garden area, and they set up some uh, partitions so people couldn't see what they were doing. And they started to, uh, on hours when people weren't in the banks, they started to work on getting through the floor, the, the ceiling of where they were in the, that was the floor of the bank. And then on a Sunday, the bank was not guarded, which is amazing. And on a Sunday, they finally broke through and, and Ned was the cracksman. So he was the person who would open the safe and, or the vault or both. So he, they got through it and they got a, away with a very large amount of money. It was said to be either ha- between half a million and a million dollars of the, of the currency of that time period. So that was a big, a big robbery and a big uh, boost to Ned's uh, you know, notoriety as a criminal. At some point he, he loses his left ear, yes. doesn't he, in a fight. And that makes it much more difficult for him to blend into a crowd. Correct, right. So the, this is, you know, the important thing to understand was is that at this time period when photography is still kind of 
only occasionally being used and it's not being used in any consistent way. Um, people relied on, you know, disguises, aliases, um, th- things like that, you know, lack of, of any kind of records to prove who they were. Uh, they relied on those things to get away with crime. I mean, in a very big way, you know, people who were professional criminals, this was really a very important aspect to how they would, even if they were, were arrested, how they would get off. And uh, yeah, when he lost, he lost most of his ear uh, when he was in a street fight with another uh, criminal named Jimmy Haggerty and Jimmy bit his ear off. So, you know, this is kind of like gangs of New York type stuff. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, it was very bad uh, for him. It, It made him much more recognizable when he doesn't have that big chunk of his ear. So, yeah. <laughs> they end up having quite a few children together, too. They, yeah, they, they ended up having six children at least. Um, those are the only, those were the children that could be traced. It's possible they had more. There may have been miscarriages or uh, stillbirths or whatever, because at some point, Sophie claimed she had 10 total. But, you know, she was always lying about things. So who knows? But so there were, there were six children who could be traced to, to them. And, but it's not clear that some of those children were his because they were definitely on the outs by the 1870s. And she was running around, um, you know, meeting other men. So, uh, but definitely the first three children were his. I'm convinced of that. After that, I make no promises. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a pretty rough life for the kids, especially when they were both serving prison sentences at the same time. And the kids would just get dumped off at various places. Oh, it was a terrible life for them. Yeah, it was absolutely terrible. Um, They were being moved around uh, to different, you know, maybe at the home of a friend or um, at one point, Sophie put them in the House of Refuge on Randall's Island, um, and in the orphanage, excuse me, not the House of Refuge, at the, in the orphanage on Randall's Island, which was in the same general vicinity of where she'd been incarcerated when she was 12. So it was a terrible life for them. And one, one of the children, the, the youngest of those first three, she died. We don't really know exactly what took her, but it was some kind of infectious disease. So, you know, that left just the two and, um, and they, yeah, they had a rough time. So one of the many stories I found fascinating was the one where she and Ned both escaped from prison, Mm -hmm. literally just weeks apart from each other. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, um, yeah, that was, I, they escaped from Sing Sing prison. They both ended up incarcerated in Sing Sing for different crimes, not crimes they had done together. But they ended up at Sing Sing. Now, of course, there was a men's prison and a women's prison. They weren't mixing uh, people together. But um, yeah, Ned was not going to stay in Sing Sing. So he, he and he had plenty of money. So, you know, this was going to involve bribery and, you know, some people helping him from the outside. But yeah, he managed to get um, get a couple of other criminals to to help him escape, and he but he also needed somebody from the inside 
So he found um, a man who was trusted by the warden, and they began to work together. And he said, "Look, if you help me, you know, I'll, I'll, you'll be part of this escape. You'll get out too." And the guy said, "Great." So they started to work together, and the man worked in the office of the prison, and he managed to get some documents that they um, got out of the prison to people working outside. And through the use of these documents, they sent some an invitation to the warden and his assistant to go see the funeral of Horace Greeley, Horace Greeley being a very famous newspaper man who died uh, in 1872 in New York City and was going to have a huge funeral, you know, that was going to go down Fifth Avenue. So they got these documents out and the, the warden and his assistant were invited. So that was the, the crucial thing to get them out of the way. And then, you know, they could bribe some guards and whatnot, and they got some uh, clothing and beards, fake beards, you know, uh, hats and things into the prison. And the, the minute the, guy, the warden and his assistant left, they put this, this garb on, you know, these disguises on and met their uh, crooks who were waiting outside with a horse and carriage and left. They walked out of Sing Sing. And then uh, Ned came back a few weeks later and he got Sophie out of the women's side. But, you know, prisons, there were prison breaks happening back then. I mean, Sophie's uh, third husband, Jim Brady, was escaped from prison. I do not know. I can't remember how many times, like three or four or five times. It was, you know, it happened a fair amount. Um, It's just that this escape from Sing Sing was kind of, it was interesting the way they did it, you know, again, it required some planning. (laughs) And, uh, and so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. In the, in the past, I've, I've done some episodes on prolific con artists from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And, and the one thing that they were all able to really take advantage of is, is the fact that there was no national database of information. Oh yeah. And they could move from state to state with new names easily and have decently long and relatively nonviolent criminal careers if they played it carefully. Right. Absolutely. That was very huge. That was very important. And that's why when Thomas Burns came out with his book, Professional Criminals of America, things got quite a bit tighter, particularly in New York City for people, because now there were faces that could be put with with names and people's sort of uh, mo, so I think it's at that point that a number of these people decided that New York was just not a good place to be any longer, and they got out. And Sophie, you know, her photo in the book was taken in 1886 in New York when she happened to go back there, and she did some shoplifting, and she uh, got caught. And I think she had no idea that the, I mean, I'm sure she had no idea that Burns was busy working or had the idea for this book. And that photo ended up in the book. And then newspapers from there on out would do drawings based on that photo. And, you know, they're not often very good drawings, but they're good enough that she could be recognized. So I, I'm not sure she would have been smiling had she known that this was what was going to happen <laughs> with, with her photo. Right. <laughs> right. 
this book would haunt her for a while. For a, quite a while, yes. Uh, make her life difficult. But you mentioned the book you have, um, her, da- her Daughter's Copy. Mm-hmm. There was probably some part of, of Sophie that was pleased that she made it into that book, a, a book that documented the, the top criminals in the country. There must have been some iota of satisfaction for a job well done, I guess. I'm sure there was because the sex, because the book, the binding of the book is broken in that, on the pages where she appears. So <laughs> those pages were clearly looked at a lot. So yes, I think so. I think you're right. So one of the things she became an expert at, you write, is, is what you call the classic blackmail swindle, mm-hmm. the badger game. What was the badger game? Well, the Badger game normally was where a woman uh, who was, you know, I don't know if you want to say prostitute, but a woman who was willing to have sex with men would lure a, a wealthy man, uh, convince a So it's, it's sort of part con game, part sex work. Uh, she would lure a wealthy man into believing that she was a, you know, above board woman, a, a, a a regular woman, not a not um, a sex worker, and she would get him to come with her to her home, and you know then claim, oh let's you know let's get into bed, and you know he would usually get uh, pulled into the idea and start undressing, and then her husband or brother or father or whoever would suddenly show up. And, oh, goodness, oh, dear, my husband is home. You know, you've got to get out of here quickly. And, uh, and the husband would storm into the room and then and demand money from the man. And, of course, the, mo- the man didn't want to be, because he's, a, you know, uh, got some kind of reputation in the community. He didn't want to be outed as ge- being involved in this kind of activity. So uh, he would pay up. So that's how the Badger game worked. I mean, there were there were variations on it, but that's the basic scheme. So Sophie started doing that, but she started do, doing it in a different way. She started getting the man alone in a hotel room and then stealing his clothes and either throwing them out the window or throwing them in a trunk and locking them in a trunk and then forcing the man to write her a check or give her cash. Usually it was a check to get the clothing back so he could leave. So she was pulling these cons by herself. uh, And she was netting a lot of money doing this, you know, and she didn't have to share it with anybody. So it was, it was quite bold. You know, it involved uh, her ability as an actress and to pass herself off as you know, a, a nice woman, a society woman, perhaps even, uh, because she would usually, she would go to a city where she wasn't known. She would scope out who the, the well-off men were who, and she would somehow figure out, oh, this guy might, you know, be a good mark for me. And she would go and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm new in town and I want to do this real estate transaction or I, I want to buy some land or something. And so she would come up with very believable ways to get the man to, uh, you know, get him into her net. And then she'd say, oh, dear, I left the deed in my hotel room. Would you mind meeting me there? You know, something like that. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, this was the con woman side of her, but it also was the actress side and the, the side that liked to dress up and uh, trick people into thinking she was somebody she wasn't. And, of course, she'd been trained to do that from an early age by her mother, who had taken her to various places in New York City where she, her mother would dress her up, and, and uh, this was the way that they could go to uh, Barnum's American Museum, and nobody would say, oh, there's a poor girl from the Lower East Side. They'd say, oh, this is a nice girl. I don't have to worry about her. And meanwhile, she's slitting their pockets with a knife and reaching in and removing their cash. So, <laughs> Yeah, that reminds me. Um, she, she liked to work fairs too. She loved to work fairs as a pickpocket. Yes, those were those all all pickpockets were drawn to places like that because there were lots of people crowded together and people were distracted and uh, people weren't paying attention to what they were doing with their, you know, what was happening with their money and uh, or their watch or whatever. So yes, she she did much of that. Yes. Um, when she was arrested in Ann Arbor, not far from my house, she was at the Washtenaw County Fair and, you know, which was a big, big event. It was one of these, these fairs where uh, farmers would come and show their wares and things like that. And, you know, she was in the floral hall and she, uh, found a mark and, uh, was an elderly woman. She she said, she went up to the woman and said, Oh dear, I think you've dropped your watch. Your hand, I'm sorry, your handkerchief. And she said, let me get it for you. So she picked up the woman's handkerchief. And in the meantime, she robbed her while, while she was close enough to her to do that. She, she robbed her of her watch and chain. So, you know, you do that many times a day. And, and you've, you know, watches were a big deal back then. They were valuable, you know. So, uh, yeah, you've, you've made a pretty good take. So Yeah, and I think she was eventually caught on that one, right? She she took it to a pawn shop or something, right? She, well, she she didn't take it to a pawn shop, but she was working with a fence in Detroit who took it to a pawn shop. And yes, uh, they they at that point the Detroit police was so sick of dealing with her, they were really looking for some way to just get her, you know, off their out of their area and out of their hair. So yeah, they they really worked hard on that particular uh, um, conviction, they had to try her three times uh, for stealing one watch and chain. And eventually, she I mean, she was incarcerated in the House of, of uh, Correction in Detroit, but uh, twice, but eventually she was found not guilty in the third trial. And she got off. I Who knows how much money they must have spent. <laughs> so... <laughs> Have you ever added up the number of times she'd been arrested or tried, convicted, gone to prison? No, because it's impossible to know. Um, because I know that there were times that I wasn't able to figure out when she was arrested. So I haven't. But I'm sure it was uh, maybe, you know, in the teens or twenties in terms of her arrests. Yeah. So Sophie had a nemesis in her life, a woman named Teresa Lewis. <laughs> oh yes. Teresa Lewis. Yeah. Would you share with us how they met and how they developed into such enemies? 
Well, Sophie uh, had established herself in Detroit at this point. She was separated from Ned. He was in prison again. And so she has a home in Detroit at 23rd and 4th Street, which is right near where the Ambassador Bridge from Canada comes in right now. There's nothing, there's no neighborhood left there at all. Everything's gone. All the homes are gone. But she, then it was apparently a fairly nice neighborhood and she had a home and she, uh, this woman, Teresa Lewis, showed up at her door one day. She'd been kicked out of her home where she'd been staying with her sister and brother-in-law. And she asked if she could stay. And at some point, Sophie, when she'd been incarcerated in the Detroit jail um, a few weeks or months earlier, uh, Teresa, who was a very religious woman, had gone in and, and had been making visits to the prisoners in jail and offering to read the Bible with them. So so Sophie remembered her, and when Teresa showed up, she said, "Okay, sure, yeah, I'll give you a place to stay. I've got an extra room. You you come on, on come on in." And Teresa went, you know, began living with Sophie. But Teresa was really kind of a hard luck story because her husband had died, and she had a young son to support, and she really had no means, like many women whose husbands died back then. She had no way to support herself, and her, her parents were dead, and her sister was sick of her. So, you know, this gave her an opportunity. She began to realize that Sophie was involved in these criminal activities. And she, uh, this, she began to think, well, this might be a chance for me to make some money. So she went to the Detroit police and she got a, an interview with the, the uh, chief of police, Andrew Rogers. And she said, if you will pay me, I will spy on this woman for you. And I will bring you things that she has stolen. And you can... Before they get fenced, you can, you know, take numbers off watches and just get a general sense of what's going on here. And Rogers apparently said yes to this uh, idea. And Teresa was is sometimes referred to in newspaper articles as a woman detective, which in a way she was. Uh, but she went uh, went through with her end of the bargain and brought a lot of things in. You know, Sophie was often off at this time, out of town, going to various cities to do her uh, pickpocketing and shoplifting. She uh, she went to a lot of cities in Ohio. She particularly liked Ohio. It wasn't too far away. So uh, so you know, she, Teresa would would take these things and and the police would you know make notes and then they she would take them back so nobody knew that they'd been gone. And eventually, uh, Sophie, you know, got into trouble. And uh, she, through this, through what was going on with Teresa, and eventually she realized that Teresa was spying on her and she absolutely hated her for it. And it got, you know, she kicked her out. She kicked Teresa out of the house. She accused her of stealing. Sophie accused Teresa of stealing from her. There was a trial related to Teresa stealing things. Uh, which, you know, she ended up being acquitted, but uh, it was that was a, a difficult period. And uh, Andrew Rogers, the chief of police, lost his job over this whole scandal. So, uh, yeah, to, um, Sophie absolutely hated Teresa. And at one point during all of these various trials and hearings and stays in the House of Correction and in jail, um, Sophie's one of her younger daughters uh, died in Windsor. She was in a, um, a boarding school in Windsor, Canada, a Catholic boarding school, and she died. And I think, I think Sophie really, really then hated Teresa 
even though she probably couldn't have, you know, she, she died of scarlet fever, so she wouldn't have been able to prevent the child from dying. But I think she hated the idea that it happened when she was so distracted by all of, all of these, these things. And she totally blamed Teresa. She also hated the chief of police of, of Detroit. So. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of children, and you do write a lot about her children, Mm-hmm. But one in particular, <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he was a troubled kid from almost the beginning. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about George and what happened between him and his mother? Sure. Well, George George was the oldest child. And um, I believe that when Sophie and Ned began to be estranged and not get along from with each other, that George spent time with Ned by himself. And, you know, Ned, as we know, was a career criminal. And, uh, and he began to teach George uh, his, you know, his techniques for uh, bank robbery and and various things. And so George started to go down this path of, of being a criminal when he was quite young, apparently when he was in his early teens. And by the time he was in his mid-teens, Ned was gone. Ned was in prison, but George was on his own in New York City, and he developed his own gang of of young robbers. And um, he eventually got caught, and he was sent to uh, Auburn Penitentiary. I'm sorry, he was sent to originally he was sent to Elmira Penitentiary in Elmira, New York, eventually, and. Uh, he could have been sent to the House of Refuge, but he lied about how old he was. He claimed that he was older than he was. So they sent him to Elmira, where the minimum age was 17, and, and he was only 15. And Elmira had a, an indeterminate sentencing rule. So that meant when you were sent to Elmira, it would depend on the warden. The warden could decide when you would be released. And George hated that. He hated not knowing how long he was going to be able to, to uh, you know, how long he was going to be forced to spend there. Uh, and he, he did not like the warden, who was a man named Zebulon Brockway. And uh, apparently they were doing some pretty nasty things. Conditions were not great. And uh, so George did a lot of complaining. He even complained to some uh, New York governmental body about it when they were doing looking into Brockway and how things were running at Elmira because this indeterminate sentencing was a new idea and nobody was quite sure that it was a good idea. So George did some complaint complaining and uh, nobody really liked him, him among the warden and the guards. So he got his wish. When he turned 19, they decided to send him to Auburn prison. And Auburn was the hardcore prison. You know, this was the place where you had, uh, you know, solitary confinement was the rule, and nobody spoke. No, the the prisoners didn't speak to each other. And I, I, I don't, I don't think, probably as twenty first century people, we can imagine quite how bad conditions were in these prisons, these nineteenth century prisons. They were awful. And George ended up uh, getting typhoid fever and dying there shortly before he turned 20, I believe. So, And he, Sophie had gone to visit him, and, she, and he had begged her to get him out. 
somehow pull strings, do whatever. And she was, she's told, she had to tell him that I, there's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't get you out of here. So he, she said, you'll just have to serve your sentence. And, uh, and he was close to being released when he died. So yeah, that was, that's a sad part of the story. Yeah. His complaint was that he wasn't able to perform the hard labor that he was assigned, right? Right. That's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what he, he said that at, at Elmira, you know, he was small, of course, because but partly because he wasn't the age that he had said he was. But uh, yeah, they were having, you know, prisoners always worked at all these prisons so that they could make money for the prison so that they didn't have to charge taxpayers for to to run the prison. So he was apparently uh, um, forced to carry around heavy ladles of like molten metal of some sort. And he would wasn't able to do it. And he, he was slapping it on his feet. So yes, he complained. That was another thing that he complained about to the uh, New York state authorities. Wow. Yeah. When we return, what happens to Sophie Lyons at the end of her life? My guest shares details of her final years. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. 
is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we're back. So in 1887, Sophie goes back to Detroit, and she files for divorce from Ned Lyons, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And after that, she falls into company with Big Jim Brady. Uh, yeah, in 1888, she connected with Big Jim Brady. He was still in prison in 1887. He was in Auburn. He actually offered to pay for George's funeral. She didn't have enough money. So he, he knew Ned, and uh, he offered to pay for the funeral. And that is apparently sort of how they got reconnect, reacquainted with one another. They may have known each other earlier in the early New York City days. So yes, he offered to do that. That was a real kindness for her, you know, to be able to bury George in a, in an actual cemetery. So they got, they got together when, uh, when Jim got out and Jim had been in Auburn for 11 years by the time he got out. So they, they hooked up in, in England, uh, in England or in Europe and they started, Jim was, a bank robber, but he was also a con man, and he was also great at disguises and things like that. So they started conning people in Europe and convincing them that they were uh, wealthy people and then robbing them. So they did that for a while. Then they came back to Detroit and did, a, did some uh, pickpocketing in Detroit. And then they went back to England and did some more bank jobs over there. And, uh, and then Sophie uh, had her last child, who was Jim's daughter, Sophia Brady. And then Jim vanished. So yeah, that's, that's the story of Jim. I found this part funny. Uh, when, when Brady was being released from prison, yes. <laughs> yes. He, he was asked by someone what his religion was. <laughs> He said he was a, um, what did he say he was? Uh, a, materialist. Uh, materialist. He was a material. I mean, this is, you know, if you look at this record from Auburn, everybody's saying either Roman Catholic or Protestant, mostly Roman Catholic, because a lot of these people were Irish. And Jim was the son of Irish immigrants. And so he was Roman Catholic, but he said he was a materialist. I And I think he said that on purpose, you know. I think he thought that was funny. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so as, as Sophie got older, especially after one specific stint in prison where she got sick, um, you, you write that her looks kind of began to harden mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she couldn't rely on sexual blackmail for steady income any any longer. Right. Yeah. She had to do some other things. Yeah. So, you know, she continued doing the con stuff, and she had also was also hooking up with another guy, uh, uh, Billy Burke, Billy the Kid, William James Burke, who was a younger man. He was 11 years younger, I believe, but they had sort of had an off and, off and on relationship for a while. And, uh, but as she got older, she really latched on to Billy and wanted to keep him, and they eventually did get married, and, but not until 1910. And uh, they were doing a lot of sneak thief stuff. Billy was a really well-known sneak thief. And sneak thieves were, 
they were bank robbers often, but they were people who would steal money by subterfuge, not trying to break into a vault or, uh, you know, using a gun or something like that. So they would come up with different ways to go into a bank and distract people, you know, maybe when when during lunchtime, when there weren't as many uh, workers in the bank, they would find ways to distract people. So, of course, they were they had to be con men because they had to be look like they were on the up and up and, and like they were, oh, yeah, I'm ready to put some money in this bank and just happen to be here, you know, at the moment. And, oh, let me reach over there and grab that money and let me do it while your back is turned. And so that was that was what Billy was about. And uh, he was a career criminal. He started as a very young man and continued until he was too old and feeble to do it. But um, Sophie did a number of bank robberies with him. She was involved. She would often be the person who would distract the clerk. And then as time went on and Billy uh, began to live with her in Detroit, she, he would claim to be a, a realtor or a real estate agent. But in the meantime, he's, he's often getting involved, you know, going off and doing a bank robbery here or there. And uh, she was often running to his rescue to try to get him out of jail or, you know, get him, uh, get him a good attorney to get him off, something like that. So, yeah, as she got older, that was kind of, um, she sort of devoted her life to Billy Burke even though he didn't seem to devote his life to her. She was totally enamored of him. And he, he, he predeceased her, which I think was, was hard for her. Even though he was younger, he died before she did. And I think that that was really the turning point for her of just having, really being quite depressed much of the time. And I'm sure my listeners have figured it out, but just to be completely clear, this is a different Billy the Kid than the one we are used to. No, this was not William Bonney. He had died years and years before out West, but uh, or at least people think he did. Um, no, this is a different Billy the Kid or different uh, Billy Burke was his name, William Burke. But uh, he was called Billy the Kid and he was around the same age as William Bonney. So it's possible that some of his criminal friends thought that this was a funny thing to call him, you know, to yeah. <laughs> knowing about Billy the Kid. Oh, let's let here's another Billy the Kid because he was quite apparently when he was you know he got started early and he was quite. If you look at his mugshots from early on, he was quite young looking in those early mugshots. So that may be a tie-in also. So it, it was the summer of 1889, right? when Sophie and Billy Burke traveled to Europe and brought back a sizable chunk of money, uh, wealth? Well, they traveled a number of times to Europe and brought back wealth many times when they traveled to Europe. So, yes, I'm sure there was uh, one in 1899. and But then during the early 20th century, they were over there quite a bit. It's it's hard to know exactly how many times they were over there. Because again, you know, there weren't there weren't great records of this. But they yeah, they came back and uh, you know, at this point the Detroit police again are totally sick of them, really want to get them out of town. So they the Detroit police chief told uh you know, told all the bankers in town who Billy Burke was, and he told his officers that if Billy 
was seen on the street, he'd be arrested. It didn't, he didn't matter whether he had pulled a crime or, you know, was suspected of something. They were just to arrest him. And of course that was illegal, but he didn't care. (laughs) And in the meantime, she was involved in other illegalities, including smuggling Chinese immigrants into America. Right. Because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, people couldn't come in from China very easily anymore to America. So, yes, she was. And because Detroit is so close to Canada, you know, a quick ferry ride across uh, the Detroit River from, you know, you go from Windsor to Detroit and you're there. And so, yes, she was she got involved in that. She got involved in another scam related to mail order brides. Uh, again, this was kind of a big thing in America at that point. This idea that um, you know a lot of men had gone out west. There weren't a lot of women out there. They were looking for for a wife, and these so these marriage bureaus sprung up around America, and they were usually scams. You know, send us five bucks, you get or whatever, however amount of money they wanted, send us this money, we'll enroll you in the program. And, you know, we'll give you the names of all these women who are just hankering to go out to Wyoming, or, you know, Northern California, or wherever it is you are. And, uh, and of course, it was just a scam, for the most part, the men lost their money. So she got involved in that. Yep. So was there a transition for her? From a criminal life to a life of honesty, did, did she settle down and take the straight and narrow? Well, I think she did by the time she wrote her memoir, or by the time her memoir was published in 1913. I think she was done with crime at that point. Although she was still perfectly fine with being married to a criminal and trying to get him out of jail or prison or whatever. Um, this is Billy Burke again. Uh but she was, I think she was finished with crime at that point. Yes. But I don't, she claimed to have been done much earlier and I don't, I don't think she was. I think the first decade of the 20th century was the time when she was going to Europe, doing most of her, her uh, criminal activity in Europe of, you know, going and, and robbing people, going, going into nice hotels and convincing people she was a uh, a well-off person and then finding ways to steal their jewels or whatever. But, I mean, she and Billy were over there doing that a lot. But I think by 1913, I mean, obviously she's written this book, Why Crime Does Not Pay. So, uh, you know, she really, she really can't be. If, if the Detroit police pick her up for some reason, it's going to really look bad. And I think she wanted to be part of good society by then. You know, at that point, Detroit has become a huge city. I mean, it's become a place where you've got all these wealthy industrialists, you know, and people, the automobile companies are there. And, and it's just, you know, she wants to be part of that. But of course, she's never going to be. Because she also wanted to keep talking about how great crime was and all these fun things she'd done when she was younger. And, you know, isn't crime interesting? And of course it is interesting. And, you know, so, but, but a lot of the people from the good part of society didn't want to hear about this. So, 
Yeah, she she never really made it into acceptance, I don't think. Yeah. So her relationship with her children in general was difficult. Um, We don't need to go over each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. People can delve into those by reading your book. Right. But, But the book you talked about finding at the beginning of this interview with her daughter Florence's name inside, I'd love it if you could address Sophie's sometimes stormy relationship with Florence mm-hmm. and whether they were ever able to to make amends. Uh, sure. Uh, Florence was the only child of Sophie's who lived most of her life in Detroit. So, so Sophie, when Sophie got to Detroit, apparently Florence moved there also. Well, you know, Florence was in boarding school, Catholic boarding school in Windsor. And, um, but when Sophie couldn't pay the bills in the early 1880s, Florence got kicked out of the boarding school and she did eventually as a as sort of mid teens she made her way to Detroit and she lived off and on with Sophie but she um she also had some sort of low wage jobs working through she got some jobs through the catholic church working at different institutions and she was quite a serious catholic apparently Sophie was jewish but Ned was a catholic and um so so Florence stayed around in Detroit, but she had to change her name. And she started to, because, she, you know, she didn't want people to associate her with her mother. And um, she started to do things like she would work as a nanny. She did have a pretty good education. So she was able to work as a nanny and, and teach languages to her charges. Uh, but if any, you know, if someone found out that she was uh, Sophie's daughter, they'd fire her right away. So it was kind of a tough road to hoe. Uh, but she ended up staying there, working low-wage jobs, and she did get married. But unfortunately, her husband was an alcoholic. And then in, her, uh, in the early 20th century, she had her only child, Esther, and was off with the husband again. So really had no way to, it was very difficult for her to make money. And she began to work as an organ grinder on the streets of Detroit sort of just a beggar almost. And, you know, they, she, Sophie saw her one day and, you know, she apparently was very abusive towards Florence and said, I'm not giving you any money. You know, why are you wasting your life this way? Why did you marry this horrible man? I didn't approve of him. And why are you wasting your life? You know, you could be doing something better than this. And so they really didn't get along and they had this sort of public feud for a a little while. And then Florence kind of goes into the shadows and apparently she was just sort of living off charity. And, you know, if somebody had a barn she could stay in, that was okay. And so it was, it was rough for her. And, um, but finally, as Sophie got to be older and, and especially after Billy, Billy Burke died, um, Sophie was concerned about her daughter, Madeline, or Sophia Brady, whose uh, alias was Madeline Belmont. And so Sophie reconnected with Florence because she wanted Florence to go over to England where uh, Madeline was and find out what was going on with her. She'd apparently been uh, put into a mental institution because she was suffering from a mental illness. So, uh, So Sophie reconnected with Florence finally and made amends with Florence and said, please come back and live with me. I, I need help. I'm 
I'm really in dire straits. I, you know, I don't have anybody. I, I need you. And it looks like, like Florence was about ready to do that when Sophie died. Wow. So when did Sophie die? And, and what happened to her estate after her death? Sophie died in uh, the spring of 1924. And um, after she died, there was a big battle over her estate. The, the probate got closed too quickly, in Florence's opinion. And Florence wanted it reopened. And because she heard that uh, Madeline, the half-sister in England, was only going to get $2,000, and she didn't think that was fair. She thought Madeline, Madeline was seriously ill at that point, and she thought Madeline needed more. So there was a big fight over reopening the probate, and it went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. And uh, Sophie had very good lawyers. She always had very good lawyers. In fact, her, her, the executor of her estate was a man named Ira Jane, who was a judge at that point, a well-known man in Detroit. So the, uh, this fight went to the Supreme Court, and, it, and actually they sided with Florence, and they did reopen the uh, estate, and uh, they did change how things were going to be divided up so that Madeline got some additional money from the estate. And that was what happened. That was, I think, ended up being a good thing. But in the long run, it's not clear that Madeline really saw much of that money. What was her estate worth at her passing? Sophie was worth uh, almost a quarter of a million dollars. Which and she'd been bragging in uh, earlier in her life that she was worth at least a million. So when she died, a lot of people, particularly in Detroit, were like, "Well, how much is she worth? Is she really worth a million? And uh, it turned out to be not a million, but you know, a quarter of a million dollars back then was close to was about three and a half million dollars in today's money. And, you know, given that most of these people that she, most of these criminals that she came up with ended up absolutely penniless with absolutely no money at all, it's kind of amazing that she ended up with that amount of money. But she was very miserly about her money. There's no doubt about that. She, she watched it like a hawk. So, uh, so she ended up with a pretty good amount. And she wanted most of it to go to build this charity home for the children of criminals. And that was what her will stated was it should go to build this charity home or, you know, she wanted them to use some buildings that she already owned and just convert these into a charity home. Uh, You know, she wanted as many as 500 people to be able to live in this home, which is a huge amount. Um, And many people said that it was People who knew Sophie and worked on her buildings said, no, these buildings are terrible. You know, you're going to have to just tear them down and build something else. So uh, it was it seemed to be kind of an unworkable idea. But the executors were fine with closing the estate until Florence started to make a lot of noise. And they, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court said, no, reopen it. Let's look. Let's look at this again. And, and they did re- reallocate some of the money. So, Interesting. Yeah. So tell us about your website and how people can get your book. Well, my website is um, capturedandexposed.com, and it 
combines my interest in 19th century, primarily 19th century and early 20th century mugshot photography with genealogy and telling stories about people, people's lives, uh, primarily criminals' lives. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's the website. And uh, I there's a link to where you can, to getting the book on Amazon there. You can also buy it from McFarland, the publisher. And um, yeah, that's... That's the story of that. Perfect. Well, this has been really, really fun. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, I'm very happy to have joined you. It's been really fun for me, too. Again, I have been speaking to Shane Davidson. She is the author of Queen of the Burglars, The Scandalous Life of Sophie Lyons. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.